generation dwells here. And then we moving by the pack, so we moving them. And even if you don't, then you do, cause you cool with them. They be like, I only went to school with them. Welcome to Color Correction, a Jesus y podcast about race and faith from the perspective of an Asian guy, a black girl, and a white guy too. I'm Andrew. I use he, him pronouns. I'm Asian. And my name's Bethany. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm black. And I'm Chris. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm white. We'd like to start off our podcast by talking about stuff that we want to correct or add from previous episodes. Um, Our previous episode was the episode about rest. Um, And the thing that I wanted to add, it's not really a correction. It's just kind of adding on top of it while I was listening to it. Um, we were kicking, we were thinking about different ways that like our society could support rest or could, could support the Sabbath. And I wanted to point out that that idea doesn't just come out of nowhere. You know, the Mm. whole old Testament law, the whole way of, of that, the, that the Torah is written is all about supporting people's ability to rest. For instance, um, letting the poor harvest gleanings from the fields or canceling debts or all these things that free people from work, worry, and anxiety. Like, you can see that whole structure as being about the fourth commandment and about the Sabbath. Yeah. And in last week's episode, I described bread and butter as an economic system. It's not an economic system. It's kind of just a general kind of political descriptor um, that's used to discuss basic issues. After I listened to that and Googled it some more, I felt dumb as hell. So I wanted to provide (laughs) that correction. Right. Um, Yeah. We have a segment called Speak Up where we like to hear from people that have been listening in. So thanks for your emails, Facebook comments. We did have we do have an email from a listener who had a specific question uh, about digital blackface. Uh, they said, "Hey, Circle Mobilizing Team, I have never heard of this before. Is digital blackface a thing?" And they post a quote or a tweet from somebody who says, "Non-black people, please stop using gifs and reaction pics of black people to express your emotions." It's digital blackface and really easy to stop doing. I stopped a year or two ago when someone said it on my timeline. Now I'm on yours. We tweet, retweet. Thank you. So basically, uh, the idea of using a gif of a black person to express an emotion, digital blackface, is it a thing? Is it okay? Is it not okay? I don't know. What do you guys think? I don't know. It depends. Like, I get tired of white people on TikTok doing those voiceovers of black people and they'll have those they'll put something on their fingers to have long nails it feels very mocking Mm. in that sense but i can understand why anybody of any gender race ethnicity whatever would post nini leak saying bloop 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 when something (laughs) (laughs) when a good point is made right like that makes sense like oh yes you did that sis bloop I can see why you would use that. (laughs) So like using GIFs and memes, black people are so expressive and can capture a a sentiment that you have like in your mind or in your body Mm. in their face in seconds. Like they were, I remember um, after Kamala and um, Mike Pence debate last week, a woman (sighs) on Good Morning America said, like most black women, she didn't always say everything that was on her face, right? Like, (laughs) right, right, right. Black people are so expressive that it kind of makes sense that our memes and gifts are more 
popular. Mm. But if, yeah, if the, I don't think the intent has to be mocking, but there's just this really weird fine line where it goes from um, expressing something well to mm-hmm. mocking. Mm. And I think you have to ask yourself where you're coming from before you use a gif or a meme. I think the other thing is that TikTok is such a medium that um, a lot of the originators of dance moves don't get the credit for them. Um, now, white people created those TikTok dance moves to convince us that they were good dancers. Yeah, I so swear that- every white guy that walked up to me at a bar did this dance move like okay hey girl you want a drink like yeah. i swear white people have created all these wait TikTok wait wait dances. wait but getting back to the idea of the digital blackface though like oh my bad Sorry, i Andrew. like i feel like i avoid using black people re- react gifts i don't know chris what do you how about you um or is this not something you've thought about before which is okay i i think about it i i mean like i send i send gifs and i i, I oh my god did you say gifs that's what they are. Um, so, I send gifts. I can do it both ways. <laughs> no, stick, st- stick with your. Um, Don't let me in, any, you. in any case, yeah. Like I, I do, I do try and pick through to like not always send like the black one, which like they're they're pretty good. They're generally pretty funny. So I, <laughs> I don't. I just think about it, mm-hmm. but I, I don't. I don't know. Like I don't know. Yeah, I think I. I tend to avoid it just because, like, the fact that black people are expressive and it's like a it's it's a thing that exists culturally in in the black culture is like a beautiful thing. But it's also related to this long history of of uh, of minstrelsy, where yeah. mm. white people specifically like made fun of the fact that black people were expressive and used like and took advantage of that in minstrel shows and stuff. And mm. once in a while, you get like kind of kind of icky weird like occasionally like an internet celebrity will pop up like a black person reacting to something like Mm. and it'll become a meme or something and it's like well part of this is because it's fun to watch part of it might be because like it might be playing into some like deeply rooted thing about black people not being able to control their emotions and like minstrelsy Mm. so if it i get that it feels a little bit icky to me so i don't i don't really you know I don't. Uh, yeah. I, I don't do it. It bugs me a little bit when I see it in a text thread, but not enough for me to be like, "You're canceled." You know, that's mm-hmm. that's where I am. Good question. That was a great question. Yeah, we yeah. could really go into that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because now that's making me reconsider my position. Hmm. Okay. Maybe we can revisit this in a couple weeks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Nice. Um, so what we have lined up today, we're super excited about. Um, we're talking to Professor Drew Hart author of tr- both Trouble I've Seen, Changing the Way the Church Views Racism, and his latest book, Who Will Be a Witness, Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance. Uh, Drew is a black man. He is a professor at Messiah. Um, I think people are going to really dig this conversation. I certainly did. And um, we're hoping to have him back. So uh, let us know what you think. And uh, through the magic of editing, here we go. All right, and we're keeping those mouth noises in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we're here with Drew Hart. 
I never know how to intro this segment because it's like we're excited to have an author guest here. Drew, you've actually been um, kind of a ghostly presence influence on our whole team <laughs> in that we've done both studies of your books and uh, we've been communicating with you about the reading your book, Trouble I've Seen, was actually really great for our, both our team and also having the church read it in terms of, of looking at uh, racism and racial reconciliation specifically in the church context it was really great um so i i think one of the reasons that we tend to kind of move in the same circles drew is that i guess um we're we're all technically anabaptists and it, it's interesting seeing how prominently you talk about anabaptism in your newest book who will be a witness because i feel like our team's experience of Anabaptism is mostly like, oh, that's the like that's the denomination. Sometimes it feels like it's the denomination that holds us back. But I, it was interesting to me, like how the idea of Anabaptism seemed to really influence your thoughts and how you're. So you seem to be able to draw a lot of. Um, it influences your faith or empowers your faith in some way. Am I right there? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think for me. I don't um, let white people define the Anabaptist tradition and to feel like they have control over its meaning, especially for today in North America. And so I draw influence from, you know, Vincent Harding and Hubert Brown and other folks who are redefining and challenging white people who claimed Anabaptism to rediscover their Anabaptism and, and to find something more significant and meaningful out of it. And so um, I think there's a stream of voices and perspectives that are really um, influential for me and I think ought to shape the broader Anabaptist movement beyond the often sometimes white, middle class, highly educated, mm. comfortable kind of Christianity that's just about not engaging in violence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for those people who don't know Drew Hart, not only is he the author of two amazing books, uh, but you're also a professor of theology at Messiah. A brother in Christ institution, an Anabaptist institution. Can you tell us how you ended up basically as an Anabaptist? Like, as a black man, specifically, yeah. uh, and as persons of color, what is it about the Anabaptist tradition that you think speaks to, speaks to our experience or your experience as a black man specifically? Yeah, I mean, uh, on one hand, I stumbled into Anabaptism. I mean, I didn't, I had never heard of it growing up. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, until I was 18, literally, I had never heard of the word Anabaptism. Um, so when I got to Messiah College as an undergrad, um, you know, the first time I heard, I thought they were talking about anti-Baptist. I'm like, yo, what you got? You got a problem with my people? You know, what's going on? You know? Um, and so, yeah, but I, I, was, I was a biblical studies major there at Messiah from 2000 and 2004. And um, Anabaptism is certainly strong in, in that department, the biblical and religious studies department, not as strong actually throughout the whole entire campus, but certainly in that department's always been very strong. And so I got introduced to the idea. I didn't actually consider myself an Anabaptist while I was there at any point, mm. um, but certainly was, began to grapple and wrestle with some of the questions that were being raised in the classroom. And then immediately afterwards, um, I was invited and hired to become the youth pastor at Harrisburg Brethren in Christ Church. And so I found myself all of a sudden a part of this Anabaptist denomination, um, still not even identifying as Anabaptist at the time. But certainly um, by that point, um, certainly articulating some themes that were certainly significant in the Anabaptist tradition and also making sense of it in my own way through 
the life of Martin Luther King and others. I mean, that's kind of how I was kind of navigating that space. Um, and so that, that was my first step into the Anabaptist world was this multiracial Anabaptist congregation in the city in Harrisburg um, and a multiracial leadership team and kind of thinking through some of that stuff. And, and that was also a space for me to be able to, you know, engage on subjects around race and injustice and things like that. So that, that was kind of my first step. But um, I left and went back and um, headed back to Philly. That's where I'm from. My family's all from there. And so and so when I came back, I was actually at my home church, black. It's officially non-denominational, but everybody was black Baptist, basically, mm-hmm. um, theologically practice, all that kind of stuff. And, um, and But in that space, I actually... Um, began to start identifying as Anabaptist. Mm -hmm. I was like, these damn Anabaptists got me, you know, realizing (laughs) that I had kind of soaked in some stuff. Um, And so it was actually while I was not a part of Anabaptist community that I first called myself Anabaptist. And then next I began to connect with a lot of the kingdom builders folks. Um, I was invited around the table and it was, you know, I didn't know there were such things as black Mennonites, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm around this table kind of getting to know Black and Latino and Asian, you know, Anabaptists and Mennonites and stuff, and and that was really um, an important space and time for me to kind of kind of process what I found was significant about Anabaptism, even as I was kind of articulating and expressing it in a different way. Yeah. And so I did my MDiv at that time. I went to Missio Seminary at the time, and then after that, did my PhD at Lutheran Theological Seminary, and basically, like my whole dissertation was grappling with black theology in the black church and Anabaptism and particularly the Mennonite church in, in particular, and just kind of grappling with their insights, putting them in conversation, letting them spar a little bit and thinking about their implications for the legacy of Christendom and white supremacy in this nation. And so, um, yeah, it's been important for me. I, I feel like those two streams have been significant and I've been able to connect with, especially black Mennonites all around the nation and, um, who, I mean, there's there's generations, right? Um, there's multiple generations of black Mennonites that go back. And so there's a tradition there and they've interpreted and wrestled and grappled with Anabaptism in different ways than the kind of broader dominant culture has often. And so mm-hmm. um, those, it has been extremely uh, helpful for me to kind of offer what I call a double critique of our society, both from the lens of black theology as well as Anabaptism. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think some of us, I think sometimes we feel a certain tension with our connection to the broader denomination or even the, the oh, Anabaptist yeah. movement because sometimes sometimes it feels like the the um, the non-involvement in politics is an excuse to tell us that we're too political mm-hmm. or there is an, an insistence on nonviolence basically by telling us that we're doing something wrong or right. that we're protesting wrong. From your perspective, like what is it about being a black Mennonite or what is it being about being a black person in the Anabaptist tradition where you, where you see that differently? Yeah, I mean, number one, I would say, I mean, if you read like 16th century Anabaptists, um, they're actually emerging out of the poor peasant rebellions that are happening. And they actually have a lot of synergy and, and, and resonance with them. Um, these were not mainstream, comfortable Christians. Um, they were the radicals who had a pretty radical economic critique of the system, um, made radical breaks with the social order and got persecuted for that. Right. And mm-hmm. so for me, um, 
In fact, this this is one of one of the first people who said it most clearly was Hubert Brown, Black Mennonite from the 1970s. He wrote a book called Black and Mennonite. And his whole thing is, you know, it, which is I love this argument. He says the you know, you white Mennonites, you can regain and recover your Anabaptism through engaging in black theology in the black power movement. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so if anything, he's like that has more to do with the 16th century Anabaptist movement than what you guys are talking about and engaging in. Yeah. Um, and I think that certainly um, in the Brethren in Christ, I mean, let's be honest, the Brethren in Christ, there's large swabs of that movement that are, I mean, you can call it an Anabaptist denomination, but many have just more assimilated into evangelicalism. So I think it'd be silly for you all to let someone else um, define for you, right, what Anabaptism is when they actually are the ones assimilating into mainstream Christianity. Um, I think that we can be grateful that there are still communities that hold to actual Anabaptist practice um, and want to live that out radically. And in fact, I'd say if it's not radical, then it's not Anabaptism. Um, And so I think, yeah, I think that that resonates. And so uh, economic critique, a critique on Christian supremacy over society, Mm -hmm. um, a a willing to challenge and resist um, what's going on in our society. I think all these things are aspects that ought to resonate, I think, with people who've been on the underside of our um, American project, um, because in many ways that that tradition and stream um, is concerned with a lot of the same concerns that I think many black and brown people have been concerned with even here in the United States. So, Drew, I'm really interested while we're talking about like our introduction to Anabaptism. Um, I feel the same way. Like I kind of stumbled into Anabaptism. Yeah. Um, and now <laughs> now that I identify as a pacifist, um, or a pacifist in training. Most days I want to slap somebody, hey, um, hey, you know. but I resist. Mm-hmm. But every time I say to my mother, well, mom, you know, I'm a pacifist. She always says, you ain't no pacifist. <laughs> like without hesitation, she says that I am not a pacifist. So I'm wondering, you talked about this a little bit earlier, Um, But I'm wondering what your church background was like growing up and how your family received you as an Anabaptist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because, I mean, there's no way in any shape that the community that I was raised in was um, a peace church in any form. Um, That was not a message that was taught. Mm -hmm. Um, That was not something that was emphasized. Um, But I do believe that Black people and black Christians in particular have throughout the centuries often been very creative in uh, resolving and transforming violent situations, breaking cycles of violence in all kinds of ways. So I don't necessarily think that, um, that those of us who didn't identify with a peace church tradition in those official formal ethics, um, I still think that sometimes we had to practice it for survival's sake, in all kinds of ways anyway. So that, that would be, I guess, some of mm-hmm. how I initially would think about it. But for myself, like, I don't use the label pacifist to describe myself, mm-hmm. um, but mm-hmm. I do use a language of peacemaker to describe myself, to thinking about what does it mean to be someone who lives in a violent world that is pursuing shalom? And that's kind of how I frame it and describe it. Um, mm-hmm. And then I talk about nonviolence as a strategy for doing that kind of work. And that has been rooted and it hasn't, 
you could argue that it has only been embodied in kind of really significant ways in this nation um, by black people mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and that black people have found a whole variety. And that, and that debate around violence and nonviolence goes all the way back to under slavery. And so black people have always been wrestling and grappling with these questions. And in some ways, that's very Anabaptist. I mean, Anabaptists from the 16th century, there were some who actually didn't uh, talk about violence and, and using, you know, violent means to to resist. And so it actually, the question, um, to raise the question is to be a part of the Anabaptist conversation, I would think. Um, but for me, um, when I think about both what I see in the person of Jesus Christ, as well as then what I think actually works, draws me in deeper and deeper into um, Anabaptist peacemaking and nonviolence. Mm-hmm. So I think about folks that I have deep respect for, um, folks who resisted violently and all that stuff and were slaughtered, Nat Turner killed, all kinds of stuff. You know, I've, you will never hear me bad talk his approach, right? Mm-hmm. You won't hear a negative word out of my mouth about that. Um, and at the same time, I would say, you know, it was impossible. It w- this was not like Haiti, where pe- black people had the possibility where their violent revolution might actually lead to freedom. Like they were up against the United States government. Um, mm-hmm. And and same thing today. Like I hear sometimes black people say, oh, we're going to get our guns and we're going to. If the U.S. government ever decided to go up against, we would be annihilated, right? I mean, it doesn't even make any sense. And we've seen it happen, you know, like 1921 Tulsa and in Philly in 1985. Exactly. And so there's something actually brilliant about the way of Jesus in terms of the peacemaking, because it's actually fighting and struggling for justice, but not on the terms of the empire. Mm, um, mm-hmm. to engage in that way. And it actually makes a lot of sense at that point. Um, that's why I think Dr. King actually thought that, you know, he called it the way of love was the most powerful weapon that uh, was available to people that were oppressed. And he didn't mean love in the sentimentality sense, but a way of struggling, right, nonviolently in the world actually makes sense. And I think that that for me um, is how I articulate it, is that there's something um, meaningful for oppressed people to consider when we think about how we go about social change and mm-hmm. what actually works. And, and actually the social science actually says peacemaking nonviolence actually does, is actually more effective, um, which goes against the assumptions of what we think uh, works in the world. Um, now, as far as my own family, like I actually don't emphasize that as the starting point. Um, so again, my starting point for talking to people isn't emphasizing peacemaking as the starting point, but but what does it mean to be followers of Jesus as the starting mm-hmm. point um, mm-hmm. and then lead into that? So I don't know if I've had that significant of debates or arguments about peacemaking and nonviolence with my family. Um, people do in general sometimes ask me questions, but I feel like when you actually talk about what this means on the ground, mm-hmm. um, this actually is actually a more practical way for people to engage in struggle and for justice and to seek social change then, you know, you know, I mean, it's almost like these militias, uh, you know, they're going to mm-hmm. take over. No, no, you're not. Not not against the U.S. government. The drone right, could come right. out and just snipe you and blow you up right. and you're and it's over. So I think on a practical level, it actually actually makes much more sense. And it's and we see the ways that it actually did bring about social change through the 50s and 60s. And it didn't mean that folks who were not doing other things as well didn't also do stuff that was significant. But but um, nonviolent social action 
uh, resistance. Um, it actually has brought change and continues all around the world under democracies and dictators to um, be really powerful and potent for bringing social change. Thanks. Yeah. It, th- that is a very evidence-based approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Just it's, it's, it's very pragmatic. Just, you know, we don't have the billions of dollars to buy tanks and planes, uh, <laughs> but we can organize in the most effective way based on the resources that we have. Mm-hmm. And, and so well, what you're arguing for is nonviolence as a matter of strategy, as a matter of effective strategy, which uh, I think is pretty compelling. Yeah, faithful um, and effective, right? Yeah. Yeah. F- so regarding the faithful part, uh, you've been talking a lot about going back to the root of things, like the root of Anabaptism, or even going back to what Jesus says originally. What I found really interesting about the about who will be a witness is the chapter where you actually talk about the stuff that happened after the root, the the stuff that has developed in between, specifically what you call Constantinian and, and Columbusian Christianity. I think yeah. oftentimes we might be used to dealing with the way that white supremacy is is allied with Christendom. But that your that chapter of the book was the first time I had ever been confronted with the fact that, or the idea that uh, white supremacy is actually in some way a result of colonial Christendom. Can you mm. talk to us a little bit of that, about that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's really false narratives within the life of the church that pretend like white supremacy is this secular problem that is infiltrating and affecting Christians is just silly. Um, when you think about it from a historical standpoint, the reality is that Christendom developed in the West. Um, I mean, obviously the first 300 years, there is no Christendom. Christians are on the, on the margins, but it, after Constantine, it continues to grow. Go, Christians go from the center, from the margins to the center, then from the center to the top. And then they start imposing Christian supremacy. Uh, Theodosius about a hundred years later, you know, is making Christianity the official religion of the land. And by 1000 AD, you have this really well-developed Christian supremacy over society. And it's in that context of crusades at that moment that a paper bull is written, uh, Terra Nullius, that gives permission for them to conquer and conquest what they call, Terra Nullius means empty lands. And they weren't actually empty. Um, People were living there, but it's non-Christian lands is what they mean by empty lands. And so that already begins to give the uh, permission for engaging and targeting non-Christian people, right? And seeing them as heathens um, and as dark places. And then um, when you jump to the 15th century, Portugal starts enslaving Africans in North, in North Africa and Spain shortly afterwards. But the church, after they begin to do that, does another papal bull, another official church teaching, um, basically giving permission to um, to plunder to engage in conquest, to put people into perpetual slavery. Um, and so they're giving the context that's justifying colonialism. And so then it's after that that, that uh, Columbus travels, right, in 1492 um, to the Bahamas. And it's after that that the, um, all the violence um, against indigenous people and then uh, forcibly stealing black people from Africa and bringing them over to um, the Americas. And so... Mm-hmm. What we see there is that this West uh, white supremacy over Western society in this late mid, uh, Christendom context uh, births white supremacy over society. That literally, if you read the literature, you can see, like, for example, if it was around like 1700 or so, when someone says Christian, they actually mean European. 
mm-hmm. and European or white. And they're, they're all conflated. They all mean the same thing as far as Westerners meant. And so mm-hmm. white Europeans meant. And so they've conflated and distorted the meaning of these words altogether. Um, and so it's, it's white supremacy is not uh, just a sociological problem. It's a theologically diseased uh, articulation of the faith. And right. so um, we've got to take responsibility for that in the church um, and that in many ways, then uh, the powerful aspect of it is, is that thanks be to God, black people received and did not and often rejected that form of Christianity and encountered a liberating God, a co-suffering God, a, fr- a God mm-hmm. that was a friend in hard times and have been here in this land and have actually been one of the best examples of what Christianity actually looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, that that's why people should be thanking us for um, <laughs> the fact that Christianity has been so faithfully expressed so often in this land, despite how it was weaponized mm-hmm. against black people and our bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I feel like white people thank us uh, for that example of Christianity when they want to weaponize it against us. So I feel like every time there's like a, an uprising, every white person on my timeline wants to talk to me about, well, Martin Luther King would be ashamed. <laughs> like that's that's when I feel like right. they kind it's of manipulative, right? Yeah, <laughs> super manipulative. Go right, ahead, Andrew. Right. Sorry. No, I mean that's a good. That's a that's a that's a good point. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, I'll just say, like, I mean, I think that King gets his whole witness gets manipulated, and so what what is fascinating absolutely. about how white America and mainstream America uses King. And I use that word intentionally uses King Mm -hmm. is to use him against King, right? King actually becomes a project of the empire. And, Mm. and, and as a a part of the um, imperial story about, about how great America is and it was inevitable and, and Dr. King had a dream and all these things. And, and what we don't talk about is how Dr. King, um, right after he talks about his dream, which he, he, Kind of stole from um, a black woman preacher, but uh, but 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 he after he preaches that and everyone knows him for that, he um, he talks about how his dream turned into a nightmare, mm. and, and we forget his late years where he said that right. America was the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. Mm-hmm. We ignore how he talks about uh, how he often defended those who engaged in riots. Um, in fact, he even went to the point. I know people quote the you know uh, riot is the the voice of the unheard or whatever. But but he also went as far as saying, like, look, pay attention to the fact that black people often in these riots are not slitting throats. They're destroying property right. and they could be slitting throats like it's happening in other places in the world. Right. Right. Um, and so even aspects and arguments that he made get ignored. Um, he. Uh, yeah. So people manipulate and use him in ways. I think I think they say his last sermon that he was going to be preaching was why America might go to hell, right? Um, that's not <laughs> that's the king so that we funny. like to quote and talk about. All of a sudden, it's um, trying to talk about peaceful marches, which is not what King was talking about. He actually talked about um, his nonviolent resistance was about actually causing tension right. and mm-hmm. shutting things down mm-hmm. so that enough so, so that all the problems could come to the surface, right? right? And people would talk about peaceful marches in a kind of way that they want things to be status quo and everyone to be happy. And that's actually not what King was talking about anyway. Yeah. The idea that the empire takes uh, a, a prophetic witness and, and then, then incorporates it into the material of the empire. Hmm. When you express the idea that black people were able to extract a true 
gospel from a diseased faith. When you when you say it like that, it actually does kind of feel like a miracle. Mm-hmm. It does. I mean, it absolutely does. I, I guess my question is, and, and to an extent, like that. That struggle is what we're trying to do now. How do we get the true faith from something that has been so completely taken over and so used by, by, you know, by colonialism and by white supremacy? Uh, Beth has been talking a little. We've been kicking around this idea of how even useful the idea that the term Christian is as a term. <laughs> I, I, I keep bringing this up because I think it's a useful example. Because it's a, a useful example. Yeah, I guess I'm that's over what, the word Christian. I don't want to be identified as a Christian anymore. And Andrew's take is like it's kind of just semantics. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I, I guess I'm curious about what you think of that. Like, how how do we keep? How do we know what to keep? How do we know what to get rid of? And mm-hmm. at what point do we say this whole thing is too messed up for us to keep? It's not useful anymore. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm, you know, if I go out somewhere in the public square, I usually will not use the label Christian to self identify myself. I will say I'm a follower of Jesus. I mean, that's just that's the what I, I say. Um, now, Seek I, I probably don't necessarily say like, it's not that I don't use the word <laughs> Christian at all anymore, but I don't think that it it's not necessarily helpful in the public square, right? Um, because people are going to associate it with Trumpians, right? I mean, I think that that's, mm-hmm. that's where it has its most traction, I think, in the public square. So I think, um, but I do think at times I will also, if I do use the word, I will use it in a very confrontational word and 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 reject that the mainstream version is legitimate Christianity in the same way that Frederick Douglass does, right? When he says that, you know, there's uh, true Christianity, there's Christianity of this land, right? And he loves the Jesus of true Christianity, the pure, peaceable, loving, you know, mm-hmm. um, impartial Christ, and therefore hates the slave-holding, woman-whipping, cradle-robbing, partial Christianity of this land. Like, I'll use it in that way if I want mm-hmm. to, like, pick a fight about what is legitimate. Um, <laughs> but but I think in general, I just if I don't have time to go into those kind of conversations, I'm going to, yeah, say I'm a follower of Jesus um, because it's about praxis. It's about a way of life yes. and not just a label that anybody can claim. Um, and we've lost the meaning of the word Christian is someone who is Jesus-shaped, who follows Jesus. But that doesn't mean that anymore in the public square. And that's that's my feeling is that like the word Christian, I feel like we've lost it. You know what I mean? I feel like Trumpians. I feel like white supremacists. I feel like they've taken it from us. And I am not um, I'm not motivated enough to try to redeem it like they can have it. I'm a follower of Jesus in practice. Mm. So I totally resonate with that. I agree. The only thing that I'm like. But it still has Christ's name in it. And so I'm not, I guess I'm like, I, some of me, the where, the where I do want to fight is I don't, I'm not going to give them, I'm not giving them the satisfaction of claiming Jesus at all. I, mm. I, that's the fight I want to okay. have, right? On the, in the public square, um, I reject you even using the name of Jesus. I, I, I think it's illegitimate. Um, and so that's the fight I want to have in the public square is that you have... Uh, skirted Jesus, his life and teachings in every possible way, and then want to claim him. No, you all fancy, sophisticated interpretations to somehow come out with supporting a narcissist, right? No, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. We're not going to just let that slide. Um, and so for Jesus' sake, 
I feel like, you know, I'm not, I don't want to water down and, and vandalize the, allow the name of Jesus and the person of Jesus to be vandalized so much that I'm not going to speak them and, and delegitimize that as an actual authentic representation of who Jesus is. Mm-hmm. So that's the only fight that I feel like I do want to have. But other than that, yeah, I think that in the public square and labeling myself, I'm going to label myself a follower of Jesus because it's about praxis and it orients people back to what it ought to have always been about the way, right? Mm-hmm. And not mm-hmm. just ideas and someone who said some prayer and thinks that it's a magic ritual that will give them, you know, escape to right. some, you know, afterlife. And so I think that that is the distinction that I'm going to want to um, make usually if I'm having conversations with folks. Mm-hmm. The uh, Who will be a witness really addresses the church and the church's role in doing what you're talking about when it when it comes to going back to to Jesus as he actually is and not Jesus as uh as white supremacy has taken over or taught that Jesus is um can you talk to us about how you see the church's role in in reclaiming that Jesus yeah i mean i don't even know where to begin with that it's a big question sure. but i i guess the maybe you should write a book about it I know we got limited time here, Drew. Let, let, I mean, I yeah. want to zoom in on this. Uh, ha, yeah, you address the role that church has that church has in addressing economic injustice. Yeah. So, can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, I mean, you see this huge contrast between Jesus's teachings on wealth and poverty and mm-hmm. American mm-hmm. churches. Um, the American church, I think mainstream American church is functionally prosperity gospel. Mm-hmm. And I think that what we see in Jesus is a radical critique that probably would make Karl Marx blush, right? Um, as it relates to <laughs> economics. Um, Blessed are the poor. Woe to you who are rich. I mean, it's not, it's, there's no nuance to Jesus's teachings on, on economics. It's a radical mm-hmm. critique over and over and over again. And we see it best expressed through the Zacchaeus story and the rich young ruler. Rich young ruler comes to Jesus, has done everything, but Jesus says, there's one thing you haven't done. Give all your wealth, sell it, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. (laughs) Too much, he's sad, he walks away. Zacchaeus comes, has this Jesus encounter. He's an exploiter of his people as a tax collector. He has this Jesus encounter, and the response is jubilee, reparations and redistribution of wealth, right? Mm -hmm. Um, He's like, I'm going to give half of my wealth to the poor, right? That's redistribution of wealth. And then he's going to do reparations. Four times what he has taken, he's going to give back, right? Which is above and beyond just what he took. And mm-hmm. so he actually cares about their flourishing and their well-being. Um, this is a radical response. And we see it all through the whole gospel of Luke. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, the church, the mainstream church has just negated, skirted, detoured, whatever they could do or spiritualized the teachings on money and wealth in so many ways so that wealthy people can somehow feel like they are following Jesus and also just completely disregarding everything he taught. <laughs> um, and it is, it's Jubilee ethics. That's what it's, it's the Leviticus image bearing and fleshing out, but broader in, than, than even um, it was initially articulated in the old Testament. And so um, the early church understood this. I mean, there was um, there's no, 
avoiding it or watering it down or domesticating its meaning in the early church. Um, I think Anabaptists tried to certainly recover it in the 16th century in terms of its implications, sharing things, whether it be the Hutterite community, sharing all things in common, or just broader in the Anabaptist movement, just this broader sense of economic sharing um, that was going on at that time. Um, but I think that, you know, we don't see that um, in most mainstream American churches. And so particularly in, in our context, you know, where the wealth of this nation was built on the enslavement of black people, um, where this, you know, a few small colonies that were struggling um, through the use of slavery became a booming economy, right? One of the largest economies in the world. Everyone was getting rich, including the North because of the industrial uh, revolution that was going on um, and them being able to make money and distribute these raw resources into, you know, goods um, all around the world. And so, um, the fact that there's now in our present day just enormous wealth gap, but even more enormous in terms of the racial wealth gap that exists today, um, we can see that clearly folks have been ignoring the teachings of Jesus and the Jubilee um, ethics that he taught and called his disciples to practice. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three of us also moonlight as activists in various contexts. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I, one kind of pressure that I feel sometimes when I'm out in activist world is that I, I kind of hide the fact that I'm part of a church <laughs> or I might hide the fact that I'm a Christian just because I don't want to be, be defensive or I don't want to be playing defense about why I'm there. So I'll mm, say I'm yeah. part of this or that organization or whatever. Do you think the church has something to offer to that broader world of social justice and, and direct action? Yeah. I mean, that's a yes and no, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that the church ought to have something to offer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Often the church does have something to offer. Right. Um, but I mean, I think that if we catch a vision for God's reign, I mean, for God's dream for us, right? I mean, that's really what it is. It's this world that God desires for us. Um, I mean, the you need to have a radical, dangerous imagination to conceive of that, mm-hmm. um, a world beyond the status quo of what exists right now, um, that, that, and then to actually strive and seek after that, to hunger and thirst for that, um, that that ought to be the posture and the position that the church is in and to be spreading that dream, that vision, that God has something better for us than the systems and structures in place that, that are death dealing that are harmful and dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, but too often the church, I mean, even just conversations around policing, right? Um, churches get all uncomfortable when you start talking about things like, you know, um, you know, defunding the police and mm-hmm. coming up with alternatives, right? In, in its place. And I think that it's unfortunate because we ought to be the ones, because we have this vision for God's shalom, um, to have the most radical vision for what is possible, um, what can be if we would lean into it. And so I think, um, yeah, I mean, it's unfortunate that that so often churches are more status quo and talking about law and order and all these kind of silly stuff (laughs) rather than things that actually lean into the, the Jesus and his reign that has come. Um, now, for me, like, I guess, uh, and maybe some of it is just because who I am in, in Harrisburg, like, everyone knows, you know, I'm a person of faith, I'm a follower of Jesus, mm. and I get invited to speak on those terms. Like, people know what they're getting when they, when I'm around. Right. Um, and so I'm, I always think, like, there is a great opportunity for those of us that are followers of Jesus um, 
that we have an opportunity to have a credible witness um, mm -hmm. for what actually following Jesus can look like and means in the public square. And again, um, to speak like just a couple of weeks ago, I was at a giving a talk for this common good, you know, rally that they were having on the Capitol steps. And, and I explicitly talked about um, the ways in which this religiosity that is so popular in our society claims Jesus. Mm -hmm. And yet, I mean, I quoted Jesus over and over again to show the contrast, right, between Jesus's commitment to justice and mercy and, and to, you know, an overall scripture's commitment to, you know, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like ever flowing streams. Mm -hmm. I want to I bring that into the public square as a conversation point um, to delegitimize um, what often counts as actual Christianity. Yeah. Uh, Chris, you had some white people questions. I did. No, I'm, I'm, yeah. And actually this, 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 like, I'm like, I'm, I'm fine. And I think now. this is a good, this is a good moment yeah. for it. Um, so why don't you go yeah. for it? Yeah. So, so Drew, my, my place in this podcast is, um, is not to be the contrarian, but, but like, hopefully to like help white people locate themselves in these conversations rightly. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I mean, I think, like, as I'm, as I'm sitting here thinking about this, I think part of what um, the white church has, a, has an issue with is locating themselves in conversations about justice, um, where it, like, I, I think we're stuck in, like, in colonialism where, like, our enemy is still the British. So, like, mm. we're still the little guys, um, and there's a bigger enemy out there, and that's, that's even where, like, law and order comes into play. Like, we don't see ourselves as the oppressors as white people in the church we don't actually see that as part of our history um, which right. does make it harder for us to find ourselves here in conversations where we might actually have to repent we might right. actually have to um, relinquish our power and our resources um, we might actually have to be in a humble place um, and ask for forgiveness um after we've we've given away our possessions um my question i i'm i'm thinking about this in terms um i mean i think i think your book in many ways is speaking to those people who have kind of found their way onto this path who like may even be surprised to find out that like they have something they need to repent of and they have this turn that they need to make um but it's it's implicit in in your title, it's the answer to their question <laughs> um, in many ways. And this book is like, it's really a primer in so many ways on how to respond to a world that you're waking up to the injustices that you've, that you're actually a part of. I, I got all the way through to chapter nine and we were, and you're talking about love. There's that really beautiful section at the end um, which is about um, responding to a world in love. And I, so much of that seems like it's, it's actually addressed to a whole different group of people, people who um, um, need to love their enemies. And I actually, I actually think many times the white church, well, they're the enemy. Like, they're, they're the people who are um, the inheritors of of the the reapers of the benefits of oppression. So I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm wondering, um, so we don't read that wrong, what you would say to those people specifically. What would I say to white people in, in particular? Like, um, I guess <laughs> yeah. in terms of what does love mean for them? Yeah. Is that the question? Or Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, um, 
I think that on that, I mean, and I do say, I kind of frame the conversation in that last chapter in a few different ways. And probably, yeah. I guess the danger is people can misinterpret what is for them and what is not for them, right? Yeah. But um, mm-hmm. but I think for white people, um, the idea of the love gap is really what I was getting at in terms okay. of they've been yeah. socialized to not love certain people. Um, and so when we think about anti-blackness and the way that that is just so pervasive in our society, um, they many white people just respond apathetically, if not judgmentally and harshly towards um, black people as we struggle because of all the realities in this society that have been stacked up and designed to impede our way of life. And so I think that for white people, the starting point is for them to own, to confess that they've been socialized in such ways that they don't actually care about black people's well-being, right? Um, To just honestly name that that they and I think the 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 test is you know if love is not sentimentality but it's about compassion and action um, and compassion in the New Testament sense which is actually like when Jesus is uh, respond moved with compassion he's moved in his bowels literally like that mm. means it's almost like physical right yeah um, in oh, terms of for real uh, it's powerful and so yeah. you have that the physical response in your body none less than action to actually do something in response to it. Um, if that's not happening, then then white people are not loving black people. It doesn't matter what they say. Oh, I have a black friend. I don't care about any of that. The fact of the matter is you have to actually respond um, in that full way. And anything short of that is not the love of God that we're talking about. Um, so I think that would be the starting point um, for me. And then that it's got to then be expressed like, um, you know, if it's public and if it's systemic um, in injustice, then love's got to be expressed in systemic ways that actually through compassion mm. and action are setting yeah. things right. Um, and again, I, I mean, yeah, I, I think that that's probably my starting point for how I would talk to white people, because I think there's this deep denial about the fact that they have been socialized into anti-blackness. Mm. And yet we all know, um, I mean, it's just, from the moment of this nation was birthed um, up to the present, um, white people have pushed narratives um, to demonize and stigmatize black people in every possible way and mm-hmm. created alternative histories, literally, to do that oh work, right? And so, Even this so week? now that, yeah, I mean, the very fact that, you know, people still want to dig at poor black people. And talk about them as lazy and they can get a job and there's all these opportunities. And then they want to tell face fake stories about how their grandfather had a penny and, you know, made himself a millionaire um, in the early 20th century without talking about the policies that were put in place that helped uh, pull white people, poor white people out of poverty. Right. And allow them to get housing. Uh, the progressive era laws that were designed to help white people and black people mm-hmm. were excluded from, right? Um, and actually did work. They actually worked to bring and pull people out of poverty. And now um, the very same folks who want to tell these, you know, magical stories, uh, how just, you know, wealth just came out of nowhere, um, at the same time, don't want to actually do the same kind of policies mm-hmm. to help pull black people out of poverty um, right. that they have been intentionally denied access to structurally, institutionally through policy. Yeah. 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 Um, Drew, we definitely want to have you back at some point because there's another side of this conversation that I'd love to get into, which is how do we as persons of color avoid 
get being completely exhausted or or getting being be falling into mm. despair when we're constantly dealing with white people telling us that stuff um yeah or how do we like how do we live in community or how how do we continue in partnership or how do you exist as a as a multiracial church for instance it, it, i would love to come back to that at some point but i know we got to let you go so we're gonna go into our last segment here um we like to end our podcast by talking about uh whatever we're into this week it could be something profound it could be something uh silly or whatever we're eating or watching or anything um Bethany usually kicks us off. So, Beth, do you want to kick us off? Sure. So, I am very into the Lovecraft Country podcast that follows up, like, literally as soon as the episode ends, Mm -hmm. like, at 10 o'clock, my phone lights up because the podcast has dropped. Um, But it really provides so much more clarity (laughs) on episodes. So, that's what I've been into. I've been listening to um, Lovecraft Country Radio. So good. Um, I'm next, right? I was. I don't know why the order is so hard for me to remember. There's no. It's okay. Just either. whatever you want to do. Um, yeah. So I'm really into this season of Fargo. Have you guys watched this show? No. It is good, it is and good. Chris so Rock good. is a good yes. dramatic actor. Yes. Yeah. Um, Chris He's good. Rock, Jason Schwartzman play. Um, they they head up um, two different mafia families in 1950s Kansas City. It's a really interesting, like, one of the things that's really interesting about it is, is the racial interplay of two marginalized groups. Um, you generally think of Italians as white. Except and, for and the fact that they have cousins. Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're not white yet, but there is this, like, there is this power grab that everyone is trying to make and they like make the same generalizations about mm-hmm. like the mongrel nature of each group it's a really um like nuanced fascinating look um not just at like gang violence like like mafia gang violence but also at like racism in the 50s yeah it's really good cool drew do you want to go next in case you need to jump off before we finish this segment yeah, let me think. You know, so these have been so busy. I've been the busiest I've ever been in my entire life this semester. Mm-hmm. Um, so not that much TV and stuff going on recently, though. I see on Twitter, I keep seeing Lovecraft Country and I'm like, oh, oh. I need to watch this. So this is on my list. Mm-hmm. But I haven't watched an episode. I even saw Fargo a little bit. So you guys are making me jealous, but I feel like I'm like out of touch with the world only knowing that these are things um, that I'm going to get to eventually. Um, <laughs> so maybe less more boring of a way of answering this question um but i've one of the things that's new for us at maasai university that i'm invested in and we just announced actually yesterday yeah i saw that oh you saw yeah is the news that we got a nearly one million dollar grant um from the lily grant to um start a program that we're calling thriving together congregations for racial justice which will be um something for our region um investing in training seminars um uh experiential learning like civil rights bus tours and things all kinds of stuff um to just kind of engage our community around race and place and the history of racial injustice in the central Pennsylvania region. And so I'm really excited about that. Um, not as cool of a response as you guys, but um, <laughs> but next time I'll be ready. No, I'm excited <laughs> for that one. I, I'm like, I, I want to see us get in on that somehow. 
Awesome. Um, and what I am into is, um, all right, I am into the chopped cheese sandwich. Uh, what? Yes, I apologize. I know I, I live in Philly. I know. Traitor! Yes, I apologize. Again, I'm sorry. But the chopped cheese is a really good sandwich. Andrew, get out. Independent sandwich tradition <laughs> that has nothing to do with the cheesesteak hoagie. Get out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my wife and I have been making chopped cheese sandwiches at home. Uh, you corrupted Amy, too? She's the one that came up with the idea. So if anything, Amy. she corrupted me. Um, so chopped cheese sandwiches. Uh, normally, you can only get them you know, in Manhattan, in, in, in uh, Spanish Harlem, specifically in the Bronx. But you can also get them in my kitchen as of last week. <laughs> and I have been enjoying that. So um, special thanks to uh, Luke Bartolomeo, our communications manager, and Jared Selby does our theme song. Uh, Drew, thank you so much for coming here and talking to us. Yeah. Um, this was really amazing. Um, Drew's yeah. book, yeah, Drew, Drew's book, Who Will Be a Witness? Igniting Activism for God's Justice, Love, and Deliverance is available. Beth, cool. Drew, did, yeah. I, did I see it? Did I, are you recording it too? Like, are you doing a, an audio it version? It just dropped. The audio book Oh, the just audio dropped. version just dropped? Yeah, it just <laughs> And dropped. I just Beth got my audiobooks. audible credit. Yep. Yep. So, so I'm, I'm on it now. I'm a little nervous to listen to myself talking, but it is me. I do do my <laughs> own reading, and so. Yeah. But um. But yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm buying it right now. All right. Cool. So with that being said, stay black, Little Mermaid. <laughs> All right. But you know what? I didn't want to say this in front of Drew. So whenever I hear the story of Zacchaeus, I heard that story for years and years and years. And then one time a pastor mentioned that story to me and he was like, and, you know, they didn't really have underwear back then. And he was hanging from a tree. So now every time I think of the Zacchaeus story, I call him Zacchaeus with his dick out. (laughs) That's how I reference that story outside of the pulpit. Well, I can't wait for your book on the, uh, like. (laughs) Well, he got his dick out for Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) And that's going to make the deep cuts. That, kids, is the moral of the story. Um...